Welcome to The Art of Growth. This is Jim Zartman, and today Joel Hubbard and I are interviewing a panel of type ones about the very essence of the Enneagram, which is looking at our core motivations, why we do what we do, not just what we do, and then the what, the patterns that emerge in order to meet the core needs of the type. If you are new to our world, you can find out more about us at theartofgrowth.org. That is the place to reach out to us about coaching or training for your organization. It's also a place to take a free Enneagram test or instincts test, which is a really important part that we did an entire season of panels on. And all of that together really helps us understand who we are and the areas we need to grow in. Theartofgrowth.org is also the place to reach out to us. But that's it for now. So let's go ahead and jump in with our type one panel. Well, welcome everyone to the Type 1 Patterns podcast. And what I'd love to do is, first of all, have you introduce yourself. Tell us uh, your name and where you're from. I'm Pam from Chicago. And I'm Erin. I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm Sherry. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Jillian, and I'm from little old England. What part? The Northwest. Do you know um, Blackpool? Uh, yes, I was just there. I no. was there two weeks ago in Market Harbor, and oh, and then all wow. the way up through Wales. Yeah, and stuff. the other side of the country. Lovely. Yep. <clears throat> it was lovely. All right. Well, let's uh, dive in. We've been talking about patterns. Um, one of our followers, one of our uh, friends, dear friends, reached out and said, hey, look, you guys always talk about patterns. You talk about the core motivation, and you talk about the connection between the two. Help us understand what you mean by patterns. What does that look like? And what does that look like by type? And so we thought, well, let's do a podcast on it and ask you folks what that's like for you. And so what I'd love to begin with is it's uh, we always you know, have these one-liners to describe the core motivation for all uh, nine types. I think most Enneagram teachers do that. It's like the single line that just says, here's the core motivation for the type one. It's to be good and have integrity and so forth. What I'd like is for you to describe your core motivation, and then we'll we'll get into uh, the patterns or the strategy of the type. So for me, I think the way I think about my core motivation, I mean, I always hear it as to be good, but for me, the way it looks like is I don't want to make a mistake. So I will triple check an email before I send it. I will usually not say anything unless I'm sure that every word I've said is accurate. And it also creeps in when other people are talking. I'm sort of tempted to correct them, especially maybe perhaps my spouse, if he says something that is inaccurate. Because I'm like, oh, no, no, that's not. And then I'm like, oh, it's not relevant to the story. It doesn't matter. But that's where I see it come out for me. Oh, dang. I so relate to that. I'm married to a seven who loves to tell stories. And that pisses him off more than anything when I try to correct the details that are not significant. Um, For me, when I thought of this question, I think the thing that uh, resonates most is to be a person of integrity, like a good person, like to do the right and the appropriate thing, which includes all those things you were talking about, Sherry, like self-editing, and to minimize or prevent criticism from the outside. And that drives a lot of behaviors, which I think will come out as we talk. Mine's very similar. Mine, I want to be good, but it's more, I want to do the right thing. 
Like I don't want to do anything that someone would question my motivation or question if I'm doing something just for myself. When I feel like I'm doing the right thing, I usually feel like it's the right thing for someone else more so than, and you know, and who am I to say what's the right thing for other people? But that's something like, I'm like, well, I'd rather do the right thing for you at the expense of what might be the best thing for me. And the inner critic as well. I have a hard time with my name being Erin. Her name is Karen. So I have a Karen on my shoulder and it's trying to keep her kind of managed as well. I can relate to all of those things. I wonder if the rest of you feel as well that a strong motivation is just to be in control of everything, make sure nothing goes wrong. So that means I'm the sort of person that looks ahead to my week, looks ahead to my day, you know, make sure that everything is under control. And that is, as you say, Sherry, about, you know, not wanting to make mistakes, sort of quite exhausting because it's not possible to be in control of life. But nevertheless, you're going to give it a good go every day of the year. So I suppose in there somewhere is a desire to live life right and do things well. But more more core than that, it feels to me, is that sense of wanting to nail everything down, be sure about everything before it happens. Mm. And it's going to express itself very differently from type one to type one, which is why there is no single definition that nails it down perfectly for any type. Uh, because we're trying to name this thing that's happening internally. And some of the Enneagram teachers that influenced me talked about it as the attention of where your mind and your behaviors and your emotions go. And so it like has an attention and it's towards something that has to do with this thing of trying to be right, trying to get it right, trying to avoid mistakes, trying to be in control, trying to have integrity. And I've heard other ones say, you know, I want, I want my life to match my values. I want my behaviors to match those. Like to me, that's really important. And so you have all sorts of language around that. It's trying to get at this internal sense that's underneath. So let's talk about the pattern and we're talking about the pattern and the strategy, and we're kind of using both of those words because on, in one sense, for some people, they say, I don't relate to the strategy because I don't think I ever sat down and mapped out how my behavior should be in order to serve that core motivation. It sort of just happened. I said, uh, you know, from an early age, I, I was behaving this way. Um, and so we're looking at it as a pattern or as a strategy. And the pattern is the sort of way that you go about trying to meet the core need of the type. And that usually comes on very early in life. Uh, and so what I would love for you to do is just sort of maybe describe as best as you can, how do you go about meeting the need, the core need to be good, to not make mistakes, to control your, your world, however you would, you know, language that. It was interesting. I, I just, I get the daily any thought from the Enneagram Institute. And the other day, it's just kind of said, oh, ones are seeking integrity and improvement. And I just feel like that sort of summarizes my entire existence. But I was thinking about that sense of like doing the right thing and being in integrity. And like, when I think about like that focus on doing the right thing, I feel like I do these things to prove myself uh, as a good person, attending to the right things, the things that should be done that 
other people, maybe I've internalized um, some of those, but it means for me, like doing things with excellence, attending to all those little bitty details, uh, proofreading something a, a bazillion times and finding that one little, you know, word or wordsmithing, you know, doing things with intentionality and seriousness. Uh, mm. Everything feels very serious. You know, I know mm. I'm in a really good place when I can laugh. Attending to every detail so there's no room for criticism is kind of what it feels like to me. And not allowing myself permission to rest until it feels done. But the problem is it never feels done because it could always be better. So there's the rub. Um, the right thing is being productive and working hard and work before play. Like a person of integrity models the right and the best way for other people and does that sort of beyond reproach and always attends to improving things because that's what you do. You don't rest until it's the very best it could be. So when I think about like at my best, I... I try to do my best. I try to do things with excellence and integrity and wisdom and clarity. And But at my worst, I'm like sort of driven by this fear of not being enough, like not doing enough, not offering enough. And that shows up even as I was preparing for this. But it drives that sort of impossible standard mm. and that sense of just self-improvement, trying to get there, you know, intense attention to detail, preciseness, and even like refining and articulating how I uh, say things. Obviously, I'm working from notes, as most of you probably are. So <laughs> I can really relate to that, Pam, about reviewing your day and sort of kicking yourself about all the tiny things that you really feel that you and sometimes I've even phoned people and said, I'm really sorry about that thing when I did that thing. And actually, I've learned not to do it because the amount of times that I bring and say sorry and try to smooth something over that just isn't a thing. And even some people have reflected back, you know, you worry too much. You know, you think way too much about your impact or your choice of words or your approach in certain circumstances. But I can relate to, relate it to way back when I was at school, you know, all my school books were all like marked up beautifully and they were all color coded <laughs> and my homework was always done and it was always ready to go in like two days before it was due. And I used to worry when I was at school, I used to think, well, if I waited until tomorrow, would it be better if I did it then? So See, I can now see how constantly I, I was, even then as a child, geared into this idea of constant improvement. You know, maybe it would happen on its own. Maybe if, would I choose exactly the same words tomorrow to describe it? And could they be better if I waited a day versus get it down and be in control of it? And of course, all of these things are fine when you're at school. I mean, the wheels came off a little bit when, when you go into a work situation and you are required to be a bit more kind of open or, or show more signs of kind of flair or judgment or last minuteness but I still have a preference for everything being done and dusted and in in order way before time always do my homework um, and as Pam says very little chance in there for rest and fun because you've got to attend to everything that needs to be done and it never is yeah. Listening to Pam's answer actually made me think of uh, a summer from like 15 years ago where I volunteered to co-chair the Vacation Bible School at our church. And I volunteered because 
like Aaron said, everyone should volunteer. So of course I have to volunteer because I have to do what I think everyone should do. So in volunteering, I volunteered and we have been doing it the same way for at least 20 years. And I decided there was a better way. This could be even better if we essentially took everything, turned it on his head, rearranged it. We had to train the teachers all over. I mean, it was just this massive undertaking. And then once I put it out there, I felt like it was my responsibility to make sure that it succeeded. And after all of that, right, it's just a week in the summer for kids to have fun and be together. After all of that, I was like, did it need to be redone? And did I need to put that much energy into it? Because honestly, at the end of that, I was exhausted, exhausted. And I can't really say that that much value came from all of that effort, but it was clearly me behaving with my constant strategy or my pattern. For me, when you just mentioned vacation Bible school, I teach Sunday school once a month at my church to second graders. And you would think that, I mean, I might as well be like a professor. So the amount of work in my brain that goes into like prepping these kids and I'm like, everybody's going to learn about salvation today um, or whatever form of like, this could be one of those key moments. If I don't miss it, you know, I've got to take the opportunity. And my sister is a elementary school teacher and she's like, Erin, just bring donuts, like make them make a snack. It is not that serious. Sing a couple songs. Like you're putting way more effort, you know? And so it's like, when you think about pulling from this source of energy and when you've used your energy for something that doesn't have to be so significant, but everything seems so significant, you know, and where this for me started as a child, I got so much praise. My parents are a nine and a two. And so it was fun. It was great. There was not a lot of pressure. So I put, uh, I created all this pressure and put on myself, but then I was constantly praised for my mom never having to look behind me. Like I'd had my homework done. I made straight A's. I mean, I, I had like a B on a progress report one time and I nearly lost my mind. So there was like no room for it to be other than perfect, other than, well, I mean, if this is the best you can do, like I had to be okay with a 95, like the, that I remember that being, you know, even though it was an A, well, it wasn't 100%. So that idea of that drive to do better, do better, you know, well, if this is the right answer, then I need to get that. How can I be wrong? And then I think some of that was, I think it was Pam and Sherry, the, the idea of being beyond reproach. I never wanted to feel in any way flawed. I, I don't look to the outside world to get positive reinforcement. Oh, you're so good. You're so smart. You've done, this is all internal. Or, this is me putting this, it's me against me as far as this pressure to perform and do quote unquote, what I think is the right thing to the best of my ability which is exhausting. So let's say you're able to do all of these things and get it all right. Like what's the payoff? You think there's going to be rest. You think that you're going to do all this and that you're going to be satisfied. Or if you can adjust your schedule accordingly, that you will find peace on the other side. But then what I have found for myself as I've tried to create more hours in a day, as I've had certain work responsibilities removed, 
then what I wind up doing is I just keep adding more to my plate. It's a compulsion in some regards, like, you know, well, I need to have this done and I need to have this done. And just season of life I'm in, I work full time and I've got three kids and a husband that travels. So those tasks are always there because for me, at least, when I've climbed one mountain, I never take that time to say, well done, pat myself on the back, enjoy that kind of, you've done this, sit in it and enjoy it. It's just check that box and what's the next one? So I don't feel like I ever reward myself for, you know, having accomplished something that's important to me and enjoying that flip side of what should be rest after doing something, you know, I just find something else to do. Wow, that is so brilliant what you said there, Erin. And I can really relate to it. You, you, it is rest and peace and a kind of self-satisfaction mm-hmm. that you think will come. And then you sit down, think it's happening. You can take that time and then you just notice something that's slightly squint or a little sort of, so I can just see something actually over there now that needs to be swept up. So you have to get up and do it again. And I suppose... Then the, the closest thing to achieving that, so to getting to the other side, is um, running a half marathon. So you, you run a half marathon, and I've only done it one, once in my life, but then you are actually not allowed to go out running. You are actually supposed to recover, and it's actually supposed to take about a week. So you kind of live in that thing where you are allowed to just sit in the delight of the achievement and the fact that you are not allowed to to undertake any any heavy exercise for a week. And I suppose uh, that's the closest I can think to what I'm trying to explain. There should be these times in every day. And when I think about getting better from the compulsions I think we all experience, it's about saying, right, where in the day, you know, I said that I'm a day planner and a week planner, you know, where in this day and in this week will there be time where I can almost as a discipline make myself take that peaceful rest and almost make it like a piece of work. Therefore, it's more likely to get done. Yeah. That's like one friend that called it margins and he deliberately did exactly that. Like you were talking about, because otherwise he wouldn't do it. It was just like, I have to be very intentional about creating in my calendar. I never even, it wasn't intuitive to him to, to, him to think like, where are the margins for me to just be, you know, for me to just allow things to be. And he had none. So he started intentionally putting that in his calendar. So, yeah. The word that keeps coming up for me, it was coming up for me when you were talking, Aaron and, and Jillian too, like it is enough that I, I have this sense of just not being able to do enough. But I think, Jim, to your question, like, what is it? It's, it's that sense that it is enough. Like I've done enough. I know enough. I'm offering enough. Being able to be at peace with that is sort of like, is that the payoff at some point? That's what I hope it is. To your point, Julian, and what you said, Joel, like I know that I am in a good place when I can say, okay, the preparation for that session that I'm going to do or uh, whatever I'm going to teach or, or whatever I'm going to offer, it's enough. And I can rest. Nah, it, it even is hard to roll off my tongue, but just being able to say to myself, it's enough. I, I've done enough. 
and I will know what to do in the moment because the preparation is enough, if that makes sense. Very good. Well, let's talk about when you became aware that the pattern that had served you at some level, at some point, right? What we mean by it served you is that the pattern exists as a means to protect you from the pain of not being able to meet the need of the core type. That sounds a little convoluted, but I can't say it meets the need because it doesn't quite do that. It's like, I need to do all of these things as a type one in order to not feel bad, in order to not feel defective or flawed or imperfect or whatever it is that you would say. And so the pattern is initially is there to protect us from that. And we'll talk about the high side of it in a moment. But what I want to look at now is at what point did you realize this pattern is not serving me like it may have done so at an earlier point in my life? I need to change. Something needs to change inside me. I would love to hear about that. I think for me, it was something, it was either in a class I took or a book I read. You know, I'm trying to be so good at everything I do. And I'm always trying to to one-up myself, essentially, and get better and better at things. And the question that was posed was, how are you isolating yourself by doing that? And I was like, that doesn't even make sense. That's a dumb question. And then they're like, their advice was, you need to try to be less perfect. And then I was certain that was bad advice because I was like, no one would ever tell anyone that they should try to be less perfect. I was like, that makes no sense. And then I sat with it for a while and I sat with it for a while and I was like, okay. So I guess in my efforts to always be better and do better, I'm sending a message to the people around me that they aren't good enough just the way they are. So I'm sending a message to my spouse and my quickly maturing children that they aren't fabulous exactly how they are right now. And I realized I was like, that is the opposite of love. That is the opposite of what I am trying to tell them. So all of my striving is sending a message that is counter to the message that I want to be sending. And that was when I was like, okay, I see what they're saying. This is going to be hard to try to be less perfect but I see that this pattern isn't helping me and it isn't helping me connect with the people I most want to connect with. Yeah. Because in one sense, love is the part inside you that says, Hey, you can improve, right? Things could be better, right? Like you don't have to be stuck. You don't have to struggle this way. You don't have to be doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. You can actually change your your patterns, right? You you can see that so clearly. And so that's where the attention goes. And that's what you wanted to convey, right? Right. I wanted yeah. to, my, I was trying to show love by showing my kids how they could be even better, but yeah. it wasn't conveying that. Yeah. As somebody who's been mothered by a one, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like like love, it does feel like criticism, um, and yet I know when I spoke spoken to my mum about it, she doesn't mean it's criticism. She means it as if to say, "Look at you know, look at your great skills and all the things you could achieve. This is how much I believe in you. That that this road ahead could be like this for you, and you just you it just doesn't sound like that when it arrives in in your mind." You know, where I have trouble, it's the idea of 
the core motivation is to reach for excellence, to reach for the best that you can do. So, you know, the conversation I have with my son that I need that this is where I'm trying to do better is your best may be an 85 or a B or whatever it is. And that's your best. But I don't understand how people can give anything but their best. And so it's not necessarily that it has to meet up to these, what an achiever might be out for, but it has to be at the end of the day, can you look back and say, well, I've done my best. I don't want to put the type of pressure that I put on myself, on my kids, because I don't want my household to be always so serious, always so we got to get all these chores done, like, which honestly, parenting a one, I mean, she's my dream. Like she comes home, she gets her life in order, like she gets her snack, she has done her homework. And so I try to help her not put so much pressure on, on herself. I'm like, well, let's go do this. She's like, well, I haven't made my bed yet, you know, um, <laughs> and I'm like, Kind of high fiving, but kind of like, like, but, but then I have, and I almost think that this is a joke at times. My third one looks to be that she's going to be a seven. And I'm like, God has, is is laughing, honestly, because he's, he's given me a one and he's given me a seven. And the seven is, she throws stuff everywhere. She's just all about living in the moment. How much ice cream, how much good stuff, how much of much can I have? But she lives in the present. She really does. And she said some like things to me when we're getting out of the car, let's get up, let's get moving. She's like, mommy, I don't, I don't rush the way you do all the time. You know, some of these things that kind of like slap you across the face or like where we live, we can go, we're in the intracoastal waterway and we can go out regularly on the boat on these uninhabited islands, see birds, see fish, see all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, my little alarm is vibrating on my watch that we need to stick to schedule and it's time for baths. And she's like, just five more minutes, mom, look at the sunset, you know? And I'm like, I want to be able to pull in and live in that freedom that she lives in. But then I also realize when she gets older, I'm probably going to have to pay a house cleaner to come and tend to her business before I come over because I'm going to be cleaning the entire time. (laughs) I'm sure of it. All right. So you've pointed out some things that that are some of the challenges you're you're facing. I want you to see if you can say what's something that you are doing well that is part of the pattern shift for you that you're growing in some way where, you know, where you can see a difference between how you were and what you are becoming. Um, I, I'd like to answer that, Joel, by going a little bit back to where I knew the type wasn't working. So being very well behaved at school, like Erin, you know, doing really well and getting straight A's and doing my homework on time and all of those good things. And it, it, it stopped, it stopped working when I went to work. Mm. Um, and I went to work for a TV news company and all of a sudden I couldn't control my work. Right. So I couldn't do it early. It's news. And, uh, it happens when it happens. And I remember on day one, I sat down on my new office and I'd got this fancy job and, uh, and it was all fancy and everybody thought it was fantastic. And, um, a colleague said to me, well, of course, the number of people you'll let down because you can't make your dinner, you, you'll make arrangements for dinner, but you won't be able to make dinner because you'll be sent somewhere. 
Um, and you'll, you'll come in on a Monday morning, but by, by the evening you'll be in Madrid or something. You'll be covering some breaking news. And to me, that just sounded, as somebody who quite likes routine and control and not disappointing people and not being thought of as a bad person, it sounded like torment, horrid, horrid situations that you're constantly apologizing to people and that also you might end up somewhere you don't know where it is, you don't speak the language, you don't know when it's going to be. And so now my, the, the way that I've gone into work, and actually now this has actually fired me up to to see if I can find a way to help young people get appropriate careers that align a little bit with the way that they're designed so they don't end up doing something that's so far away from their temperament and their natural bent um, so that my work is now much more, um, well, there's a lot less of it for a start off and there's a lot more room for creativity. I have my own little podcast and, and, and I work two days a week instead of seven. So I'm, I'm definitely um, doing less work, but, but trying to enjoy it more rather than the way that I started out in, in my work life. And I suppose that's the big learning point that I'd love to find a way to pass on to younger people. I love it. Very good. Uh, I so appreciate that, Jillian. I was thinking about this sort of is a little bit a uh, different angle, but I feel like I learned from early patterns. I uh, My mom was a sexual eight and was quite dismissive of um, anything that sort of, you know, took me away from being productive and doing the right things, including um, various messages that I got from her that I was too sensitive and too emotional. Um, I got a lot of affirmation for getting good grades and, you know, doing a bunch of extracurriculars and being in the honor society. And I did all those things. And there was some satisfaction in that. But uh, the sacrifice I think I made as I look back, I couldn't see it at the time, but uh, as I look back was like my inner landscape um, and trusting that, trusting my instincts, trusting that I had good intuition about things. I like, I learned not to trust that sort of inner landscape, I guess I would call it, but like you know, the focus in doing the right things and, you know, being good, it, it just, I sacrificed my inner world. And I think I finally stepped into a space of freedom about 11 years ago when I went through spiritual direction mm. training. Mm. Um, and the focus on uh, contemplative practices, uh, listening for the voice of God, trusting the divine voice inside me and inside the people that I meet with, that I sit with, uh, whose stories I hold, to trusting the deep value of that and trusting myself to sit in that very undefined place, uh, which is not about doing the right thing or being productive. It's quite unproductive in certain ways. It's a very slow process of sitting with brokenness, my own and theirs, and holding it tenderly. Uh, but I learned that I had good instincts, uh, that I could trust those in that space, and that I could let it unfold, and that I didn't really need to do anything except be really present in that space. And I, I do some work ahead of time, if you could call it that. I, I leave 15 minutes before I sit with people, but it's not to study. 
it's just to quiet my own spirit and that voice of not enoughness that can show up so that I can be fully present for them. But I, I think the point is that I, I have learned to trust my inner wisdom. And that's one of the things, you know, with a one that we haven't talked about, Pam, is the idea of the, the wisdom, the discernment, the trusting yourself to make the right decision. And, and I do feel like that a lot, you know, I don't second guess myself very often. And there's such a freedom in that for me um, to feel like I know what the right thing is. So that's what I'm going to do. But, you know, and, and understanding that that might not be the case for everyone, but what I can sleep with at night. So for me, learning about the Enneagram kind of changed my whole outlook on how my brain works because in, when I had got to this point of where my oneness had been serving me for so, so long, it did. But then when it stopped serving me and I started hitting these just cycles of burnout and, you know, how often is this going to happen of carrying, feeling like you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders and you just can't keep going that's where I decided, well, there's got to be something out there that explains all this. And for me, that's what the Enneagram, I was like, there's people that are like me that think like I do. This is not a flaw. Anytime I would go to four, I would think I was so flawed and so alone and so isolated. So back to what you were saying, Sherry, about the idea of you know, wanting to make everything perfect. I think we can get so lost that what we do is we isolate and we mess up our relationships. You know, for this search for perfection comes at the cost of hurting the people that we care about or not accepting them for who they are. Now in my mind is I'm going to be the best mom that an eight could have. So I've tried to really push it to help, to feel like, how is this serving? How can I serve the the world? How can I serve my family? This can be a great thing to try to help other people and change how they feel and change and help them change their health. And, you know, so there are so many positives of this. I've tried to not focus as much on the negatives that, you know, when I know I'm getting very much into my own ego is when everything has to be perfect just my way. And then I start pushing other people away that don't want to be around me. And then what do you turn out? You you feel like you're bad. And then that's our biggest fear, right? Yeah, I'm learning to um, let more things go and actually think at various points in the day. Uh, I actually don't need to do anything about that. That's not much of a thing. Or it might be a thing tomorrow, in which case it might come to mind. But otherwise, I think I might forget it. So again, this not nailing everything down. I, th- I think there's. Um, I'm learning that although you've got a good, you've got good gut instincts, you can always improve by just l- sleeping on it, or you know, engaging your thinking and feeling types by just you know going around the block with the dog. And I've, I'm finding that I'm. I don't. I don't need to think so fast. I don't need to decide so fast. If it's important, it'll come back to me. And otherwise, I might forget it, and that might be okay. So I'm learning that your your gut can go slower and your subconscious can be engaged for the overall process of improving things in your life. And overall, I think 
I'm beginning to learn that it's not a curse wanting to improve things. You're actually bringing a great gift to the world. If you're the sort of person who can go into a chaotic situation and sort of pretty much work out what's wrong and how to fix it, well, there's not a lot, you know, not everyone can do that. It's a great thing to be able to bring to the party. So that and the fact that, you know, you can make, you can make dinner for six at the drop of a hat. You know, you're probably, um, probably if you put your mind at learning bridge, you could learn it really well. And, you know, the, the sort of things that, you know, just to be able to trust that you can do things well and you'll be able to take things in your stride, um, and not worry too much. If it doesn't feel like you're in control all the time, all the time, you will probably catch up. I am learning bridge at the moment. So I'm speaking from personal pain, but yeah, so I'm sort of intentionally taking on more hobbies and making time for the things that don't seem to be that useful, you know, but actually are just enjoyable. Just do those things. I wasn't, I didn't grow up um, because I had, because I was mothered by one. I didn't really grow up learning to take an afternoon to paint or to walk or to make sure that I did some something for me. I was always working at something and making things better. But um, these insights that the Enneagram gives are very freeing, really. Mm. There's something Jillian in that that I thought was really beautiful. It's kind of like this was starting at the place of peace and then working um, towards and using your gifts and I love that sort of flip as far as like, I've got to do and do and do in order to get peace is like that, the carrot at the end of the stick kind of thing. But the way you described that at the beginning was kind of like, it's not working for peace, it's working from peace. So you having that starting point and having yourself in a peaceful state by doing these things that, that matter to you, that kind of anchor you. And then, then you can um, use your gifts in a, in a, different way so that that kind of stuck out to me i was like "Ooh, i just heard that little in there Hmm. yeah i'll pick up on that idea of gifts because uh two things came to mind as a result of your question joel one was i think it is easy for we ones to uh look at and myself especially to consider myself like my my personal self-improvement project and to be so mindful and so focused on all the things that I, you know, need to do better or am not doing up to par, but it has been freeing to embrace the deep beauty and value of having a strong sense of integrity, of uh, having an inner compass, of being able to offer discernment and clarity uh, to others in ways that they seem to really be able to receive and to to have the persistence to do things with excellence and um, but also to know that I can release myself from some of those narratives of like having to be productive or you know having to do things all the time. And one thing that Joel, this will sound familiar because um, of your coaching, and just the recent experience in the um, certification group that we just went through, uh, your repeated <laughs> invitations to access my heart mm. uh, ha- has just like invited me into this space of uh, fullness uh, rather than like that space of not enoughness. 
And I am finding that I am embodying the space I share with other people differently. It's coming from a fuller, more expansive place, um, Mm. a less apologetic or fearful place that I can relax into that, you know, if I feel myself working too hard, even like in a spiritual direction session, when I feel like, wait, I'm working too hard. I'm like, I got to relax. This is not up to me. I am not driving this. You know, the spirit is driving this and I'm, you know, imposing way too much into this space. But when I'm in that place, I, I feel like I can hold myself and other people with this sense of generosity and like capableness. It feels like generative to me. It, it gives the other person space, holds safe space for them. And I feel like I hold myself differently. Uh, more kindly, more from the space of wholeness rather than uh, lack. It just feels like I'm giving myself permission to just sort of show up as less than perfect and to take on invitations that feel scary, like being here with you. (laughs) You know, and and like pressing, okay, Joel, I'm willing. If you still need people, hopefully you don't, but you did. And so like stepping into the spaces that feel scarier and uh, trying to release that sense of having to edit myself, like being a little bit more unfiltered, which is kind of frightening for me. Frightening, but freeing. The idea that, you know, using this for good or how it could, you know, because I've listened to so many podcasts that I feel like make so much sense to me. How can I help? This could help other ones that are going through these same things that just to have somebody that you can relate to, to start the process of trying to find growth or be okay and don't think that there's something horribly wrong with you, that you're trying to live up to this ideal that you can work towards helping other people because you've helped yourself. What I've realized, so I find when people start their Enneagram journey, wherever they start, when they first figure out what number they really are, their reaction is always negative. It's like, oh, I don't want to be that number. That's, that's the worst number to be. And, and I've, I've found that's true regardless of what someone's number is. Um, and I've realized, you know, and learning more about myself as a one, there are negative aspects. But one thing I've always appreciated about being a one that I feel like has been there the whole time is this certainty as to what's right. I have always felt guided in my life by just having a certainty around what is the right thing for me to do in that moment, which brings that serenity that the one's always looking for. And I'm so thankful for that because I watch my friends who are other numbers struggle with not knowing what they should or shouldn't do and having a lot of angst and anxiety around that, which honestly, I feel like I don't typically have because I'm a one. So to me, the high side of one is that inner knowing, that gut response, however you want to felt sense, however you want to describe it, of just feeling like you know the right thing to do. So that would be the high side of being a one for me. Wonderful. 
Well, thank you to each of you. This has been a tremendous gift to hear from you, to hear you uh, share so openly. And, you know, we're all in process. So I love the fact that this isn't the kind of story where it's like, well, I once was this way, but I'm no longer that way. I'm this way now. You know, th- those kinds of stories that, that are too easy. Life is much more a series of steps forward, steps backward, steps sideways. And it's oftentimes in retrospect that we see, oh, we have grown. I just want to thank each of you for sharing that and what it is like to be a one in a one in process of growth. And thank all of you out there for continuing to learn with us. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss anything. And you can follow us on Instagram at just Art of Growth. And to keep up on everything, make sure you sign up for the newsletter because that'll let you know when new group coaching is coming up or our next certification process or even where you could volunteer to be on a panel. But for now, my friends, may you integrate the energy of the one within yourself and may you dance with the chaos of exploration and the order of future function that is around us all the time. And let grace be the music over this dance of the yin and the yang. And may you remember that it is good to be you and there is good within you to come through you. Grace and growth, my friends.